We work so hard to get stronger, happier, more productive and successful. Don't forget the secret ingredient. Get grounded in play. Play grounding when it's time to get a life. Welcome to episode number two of the Playgrounding Podcast. This is Kara Stewart, Vartier, your host, and today we're going to be talking to Meg Rabbit. Megan Athavel, um, she's known to most of us as Meg Rabbit. She's an entrepreneur. She's an artist. She's known for her work with interactive toy design. She does video mapping and projections, and she also does a little folk music. She's the co-founder and CEO of Pomotion. She makes software for interactive projection installations, and she's also the co-founder of what's called Lumo Play. It's a toy that creates a projected interactive environment for children. It was developed as part of the Highway One Startup Accelerator. She's also the co-author of Eight Patents and um, for mobile projection, augmented reality, and interactivity. And while she's doing all of this, she was a single mother, and she's also a self-taught musician. She's recorded one album and toured throughout North America. At the time of this episode going live, she's representing her fellow Canadian technologists at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. She's also done the same for the G20 Young Entrepreneur Summit. She's created a number of interactive installations in museums and public spaces, and she regularly performs video mapping and animation for public events and musical acts. And I'm not only incredibly lucky to have her on the show, but I'm proud to call her a friend. I've learned so much from her, and I know you will too. Here's the interview. I'm so excited. This is my very first interview for my exciting new uh, venture, Playgrounding, um, that I'm so excited about. And none of this would be happening if it weren't for you, Meg Rabbit. Um, you are. <laughs> um, I remember, I mean, please go ahead and tell a little bit about yourself and Lumo and all the amazing things that you've been doing um, before I kind of get into why I so desperately wanted to talk to you and have you as one of my very first guests for the podcast. Um. Okay. Uh, well, I guess um, you and I met probably just over a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and I remember sitting at Barb's with you having a conversation about play. And um, I just spent the last, well, since 2010, so like the last six years of my life working on a platform for interactive projection games. Um, so like we kind of had to discover a way of um, making games that were playable in an entirely new format, making tools so people could make their own games and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and initially when we started working on the project, the idea was we wanted to make interactive environments for kids, uh, specifically kids who had autism, um, because uh, I, I was always fascinated in how... Um, play and sort of kinetic behavior helps people learn. Um, and the nice thing about digital experiences is that they're very like low, it's, it's a, a low barrier to entry. Once you have a projector in place, you can project any kind of game on the floor, you know, like Twister or whatever. And you don't have, you don't need like a lot of equipment and stuff like that to do it once it's in place. Um, and we ended up getting a grant to develop this system for specifically for teachers and people in sensory labs dealing with children with sensory disabilities or medically fragile kids or kids who had autism and then discovered that um, the platform was really attractive to advertisers. So we pivoted. And by the time I met you, we were starting to work on a toy 
so we spent four years basically selling the software that we'd made for kids to advertisers, um, which was, you know, it, it paid the bills, but it was like not our passion. And we started working on a toy that would allow kids to create these experiences in their own rooms. And I, I remember sitting across the table from you and just ta- talking about like how we got to where we were and why play in, in particular, why play amongst adults is so inspiring to me and why I think it's such an important part of how people come up with ideas and innovate and communicate. Um, and then you were, you were already talking about doing this podcast and <laughs> having, you know, having ideas that you wanted to research and stuff like that. And I, I think I just told you to get off your ass and do it. Cause there's not, <laughs> there's not enough people that really like pay attention to how play impacts society and to the detrimental effect of removing play from adult life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I specifically remember too, um, following on that conversation, we were walking around uh, little Tokyo and you told me, because I was having some struggles, not getting off my ass like I, you know, like you told me to, <laughs> I'm just finding my own direction. And you told me about a mentor of yours that gave you some advice. And would you mind sharing that as well about um, how, 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 how you played as a child yeah. led you to where you are today? Yeah, yeah. So actually, um, he wasn't a mentor so much as uh, somebody that I totally idolized. So he's not, he's not someone I'm close to. Um, there was a graphics de- graphic designers conference uh, hosted in Winnipeg, Canada. And Winnipeg doesn't see a lot of like very prominent speakers come through. Um, and a fellow I was working with at the time, this is before I started my company, uh, named Oliver Oiki, um, he was one of the one of the chapter members and he turned around to me one day and he was like you need to come see this guy speak he was he had been um he'd worked with with Oliver and he had been Oliver's big inspiration in terms of pursuing design um and so he he said you got to come see this guy speak and and it was partly because i had already started playing around with interactives and interactive projection and partly just because the guy had changed my friend oliver's life so uh his name was his name is alex beam um and he runs a company called tangible interaction uh on the west coast of canada in vancouver mm-hmm. and he uh, spoke. He spoke at this event, and he was mostly telling the story of how his company got started. Uh, and it actually got started with something called the Zygot Ball that he had invented as part of a contest. Um, and it was a funny story because he was like, he wanted to build this massive, massive, like, like you could fit like ten people inside it. This massive ball that you you would drop like fifty or hundred of them onto a stadium audience, and it would change color every time somebody touched it. And it was a really, really cool idea. It was like cool. this weird generative art project with like hundreds of thousands of people participating. Uh, but the problem was he didn't know how to build it. He just had this idea. He just thought it was like a really cool idea and he didn't know how to build it. And um, he, so he told the story of how he, you know, how many developers he went through and how he had to iterate the project. He won the contest, but he ended up having his prize taken away because it wasn't an actual product. It was just an idea. Um, it took him two years to get it off the ground and then it ended up being so popular that all of a sudden he had a new business and it wasn't something that he planned. It was like, he wasn't planning to build interactive, um, experimental light installations as a living. He was already running a successful graphic design company. Uh, he was an agency guy. He didn't, he didn't have this long-term strategy to take the Zygot ball and start building new products around it. So he was talking about sort of the challenge of like, first of all, he was super stubborn and he found a way to build this impossible thing. Then all of a sudden, way more people than he thought would ever 
care about it, really, really wanted it, and were willing to pay you know, enormous amounts of money to get it at their concerts and events. Hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden he had to come up with other ideas. And he was like, well, you know, he just spent two to three years figuring out how to make this one thing happen, which is actually a fairly simple concept. It's a ball that changes color when you touch it. It's what makes it extraordinary is that it's giant and it can be dropped on, you know, thousands and thousands of people without crushing them. So like, there were a couple, you know, engineering challenges but in principle the idea was very simple and he was like I, you know I, I suffered for about a year trying to come up with like what is the next thing going to be how am I going to build the next thing and what he said and this was the thing that was so profound to me was he realized that when you're in that when you're in that moment in life and this hits everybody at some point like everybody ends up in in a rut or in a, a job that isn't satisfying a relationship that isn't satisfying um, and he said, the thing that got me out of it was remembering the things that inspired me when I was a child. And like by that, he wasn't talking about, you know, the cartoon shows he watched or the, um, you know, the people he saw on TV that, that he thought he should be like. What he was talking about was like, what makes you excited? What makes you want to get out of bed when the sun is coming up when you're a little kid? And those experiences are very unique to each person, um, depending on where you grew up and who your friends were, what your parents were like. Um, and in, in my case, I realized that the thing that made me like the most excited as a kid was being able to create my own little worlds. Like that was like the, I, I loved doing that. I would make blanket forts. I would like, I built a tree house that I would sneak away and stay in. That was totally not safe. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, but for me, that 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 visceral um, the the feeling that you get when you when you think that you have a place that nobody else can see, um, and it belongs exclusively to you, that was the thing that drove me, and that was that's always been kind of the driving inspiration behind what I do. Is I let I love creating interactive environments, but what I really really want to do is put the tools in the hands of other creative people so they can make their own little worlds, yeah. um, and in 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 uh, Alex's case, what he said inspired him most was um, making simple things that people wanted to touch. Mm -hmm. Like he just loved sculpture. He loved making physical products and he loved light. And so it was like a natural, he, he was like, it's natural for the next thing that I make to be something physical using light that people want to touch. And that just led him naturally down the path that he's on now. And since then, Tangible Interaction has done like massive installations for the Olympics and a lot of other really big brands and no one can really touch them when it comes to the types of experiences that they offer. But it's because he, he stayed true to the vision of what inspired him as a child. And I think that's something we're not really taught to do, no. um, but that's what keeps us happy. Mm -hmm. And we learn it early on, like within the first five years of our lives, it's already kind of apparent what, what the thing is that we geek out about the most. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I just remember when at that particular moment for me and I was feeling very stuck and when you said that all of a sudden it was like this mind-blowing remembering playing because I think I forgot what I enjoyed as a child. You know, once mm -hmm. you get into adolescence and it becomes all about boys and high school and fitting in and all that stuff, you kind of forget play and then you move into your adult life and it never resurfaces like that. You know, it yeah. resurfaces as happy hour or, you know, all these different things, but not what happens when you go out into the backyard and have 
a world of possibilities or onto the playground. And um, so when you said that, it was, it really sent me into a place of just reflection. Um, and I too, I remember we talked some about I loving to explore. And mm -hmm. that really was the number one thing that, you know, was me as a kid. I loved exploring too. So yeah, that was a extremely important conversation for me. Um, as well as, you know, just leading into what we do with our lives, with our adult lives. Um, and how did you end up following that kind of advice? How did that, where did that lead you? Um, how did, you know, what you're doing now kind of lead out of that creating little worlds? Um, well, we'll tell I more mean, about Lumo. Yeah. So I like Lumo is a fairly recent thing, but uh, immediately after seeing Alex speak, one of the biggest impacts that that statement had on my life was I'd already started to make some pretty dramatic changes in terms of um, my career and my lifestyle. Uh, I'd spent eight years working for the government because it was a comfortable job. I was a single mother. I needed stability. Um, and I mean, it wasn't a terrible job. I loved the people I worked with and I, I believed in their project. Um, but there was only so far that I could personally grow um, working in an environment where you know, every day is kind of the same. And so I had uh, quit that job and had absolutely no backup plan. I, I just, I, I put myself in a position where like I had to go get another job. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked at a sticker factory, which is not as glamorous as it sounds at all. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then, and a couple other places. And then I found myself at the um, design studio where I met Oliver and where I heard about Alex speaking and stuff. So at that point, I was kind of in between things. I was like, I, I had found another job that was somewhat more satisfying and a little bit more focused on what I what I felt were my core skill sets, which were animation and design. Um, but it wasn't really like fulfilling. It wasn't. I didn't. I didn't feel inspired. I didn't like getting up in the morning and going to work every day. Mm -hmm. And um, and I I. I saw, I saw Alex speak and I started thinking like, well, you know, the reason that this isn't fulfilling, the reason that I, you know, I'm bored at work and I can't wait to leave and I'm having trouble getting up in the mornings. Maybe the reason is because there's no, like, there's no, there's, there isn't that sense of play. There isn't that sense of creating an environment of creating, um, you know, like as a kid, I, I, I could pour over an illustration or a little model I was building or, um, a treehouse or a Quincy or whatever for hours. Like I could just like stay super obsessed and focused on like making these things that, that I would then spend another 10 days, you know, playing with and, and, um, and adding to and sharing with other people. And I was like, what, what kind of job could I have that would allow me to do that? That would allow me to go in in the morning, create something, build on it, um, and I think that that naturally led me down the path of like trying to make things and share them after work. So, so what happened after I saw Alex speak was I started uh, spending, I committed to spending at least two hours a night working on independent projects. And it started as like, like I, I made a music video for a friend. Uh, I recorded a few songs. I like, you know, little things that I knew that I could kind of do. I just spent more time actually finishing like I would start projects and finish them and I would mm -hmm. commit to finishing them without a grand plan of what I was going to do with it all in the end and that sort of led me in the direction of um, creating visuals for some of my friends who are in bands so I started by making music videos and then I was like I, I could just show up at their performances and I could throw my art on 
the wall behind them using a projector and just like project these moving images while they're playing and it'll be like a new kind of performance art. And at the time, VJing was like a fairly new, um, this was like 2007-ish and it was still a fairly new art form. Um, And there were a lot of tools coming out like our chaos and modulate and that, that allowed you to do all these different things synced in time to music um, and allowed you to video map. And so I, I taught myself some of those tools and I, I would show up at these places and I would make these, these interactive experiences um, that went to music. And I think what kind of pushed me towards developing my own software was uh, two things. One, I met um, an awesome guy named Curtis walks, who's now my business partner uh, while I was working with Oliver and he was a game developer and he was kind of at the same fork in the road in terms of his career. He didn't really want to make crappy games for the government the rest of his life, but he didn't really know what he, what he did want to do. Um, so we started, I was like, Hey, let's just hang out after work and make stuff. Like, let's just like, we'll, we'll, we'll go on the internet and find like tutorials about things that we think are cool and we'll just make them together. Um, and I mean, in all honesty, Kurt did most of the making and I did most of the like sort of raw imagining like let's see how far we can push this and how how much attention we can get doing it um but yeah we would get together we'd make our own touch screens and stuff like that and that sort of that that playfulness that like getting together and just like like it's the same sense that you get when you're building something with lego or in minecraft (laughs) or like drawing a mural on a wall um so we would just get together literally after work and just play um and that naturally led us to creating the software platform that we've commercialized. Uh, and it wasn't like, we didn't plan on having a company initially. We were just like, we're going to make, make this thing cause it's cool. And we like, we want to use it. Hmm. Um, so I think like after, after seeing Alex speak, that was the impact that it had on my life was like, it's okay to not have a plan. It's okay to just do stuff for fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, the things that we wanted to do for fun involves, you know, playing with lasers and lights and building our own touch screens and just like making technology uh, do things it wasn't meant to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to be different for everyone. Like I think everybody, you know, some people are, are incredibly interested in writing or they, they have a very keen interest. Like I know that you started taking um, stand-up comedy classes. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think like, like those, those kind of experiences are the things that that's the first step to finding Mm -hmm. the next thing that excites you. Mm -hmm. It's just like that, like, like go have fun with something. And eventually that something will lead you to some, to a, in a direction that is where you want to go. If you want to get up in the morning and do like, you know, go through your life feeling fulfilled. Um, but you're right. People lose sight of that. And I think a lot of it is like, a lot of it is the confusion of adolescence, Mm -hmm. But I think even more so, it's the pressure of stability. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. I think people feel pressured to find stability. And that's like, that. that is the opposite in a lot of ways of what play is. Wow. Wow, that is really profound right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to hear, though. It's really hard to hear because, you know, when you're broke and you're scared, and, you know, and you're kind of running on that cortisol, that's the stress levels of trying to make ends meet, um, you know, it seems like stability. It's that great carrot that just sits out there in front of us, but it can be deadly. It can lead us to despair and depression. I think a lot of this culture of, you know, the Western culture experiences a lot of that and mental illnesses are on the rise and that kind of thing. I think it's just hard. It's yeah. really hard. It is. And I mean, I think 
like we're we're kind of taught that there's this looming worst case scenario that everyone carries around with them <laughs> and it's different depending on the economic class that you're in but it's just as devastating no matter what like either you know people worry about not being able to pay their rent people worry about not um being good enough parents people worry about failing at their at their jobs or not passing their next test in school mm-hmm. and the fact is none of those things really matter if you're not happy yep if if paying your rent on time isn't going to make you ecstatically happy and a positive influence on the people around you in your community that it's really actually not that important and I, I feel like there's a lot of people in San Francisco right now who are realizing that. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, those those pressures are kind of what control people mm-hmm. and keep them from, um, like, keep them sort of contributing to the system in a controlled way. And uh, I don't, like, I would never advocate for somebody just, like, not paying their rent or, you know, blocking <laughs> out on their bills or anything like that. But I think that those things need to come down in terms of like our priorities and as far as like how fulfilled we feel as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually think that people who are in, who grow up in unstable environments are more equipped to handle those kind of things. Like mm-hmm. they're more equipped to handle the uncertainties because they, they already they've already gone through hardship and they already know that it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um and so some of the most playful people that I've met, the most playful adults that I've met are people that uh you would never describe as like reliable or stable, but they're definitely like they definitely have they have a set of priorities that makes happiness more important than stability and wow. In a lot of ways those people become a lot more creative and and innovative and inventive when it comes to like problem solving mm-hmm. um, and just a lot more open to change. And uh, in the end, those are like, those tend to be the people that inspire me the most. They're the people that like, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily hugely accomplished. They don't make a lot of money. They're not always well known, but they're the kind of people that like you go into their, you go into their houses or their, their apartments and they built their own bed frames out of like, <laughs> out of like weird stuff that they found in the dumpster. Like those, those people are like, they're, you feel like if if the whole world ended and you never <laughs> had to go to work again and there were zombies everywhere, those are the people you'd want on your team. Cause you know, they can, they could build a shelter and they, you know, like they'd be able to solve problems with this incredibly creative um, outlook. And I think that that is the thing that play brings to your adult life that a lot of people leave behind. Like, you know, you stress about stupid things because you forget that you can solve those problems with like ingenuity as opposed to money. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's so funny you say that. I actually grew up very, very not sheltered and not, but just very stable. And I think like when you grow up that way, you feel like you need to then maintain that stability throughout your entire, the entirety of your life. And that what you saw that stability, you can't waver from that or you failed. And You know, so it's been interesting to me then also being around a lot of these kind of people, the ones I want near me during the apocalypse, um, especially with <laughs> zombies. Um, yeah. I'm just looking at them like, what do I do? What do I do? You know, how do I, how do I learn what they know? How do I achieve that? And it's funny that when you said that, what I, what I kind of realized back then and during that little Tokyo conversation was I would walk out into my backyard with no preconceived ideas of what was going to happen next. 
or out onto the playground. Mm -hmm. Anything could happen. And that wasn't weird to me. You know, you're a child and you're just exploring, you're just taking in and you, you're automatically just drawn to the things that look fun and you just walk toward yeah. them and you don't question it. Um, and that that is kind of the attitude that I'm, you know, kind of trying to more adopt in my own life that's been helping me so much recently. Um, and I did finally get off my ass and start this podcast because I'm very passionate about <laughs> it. Thanks to you in many, many ways. Um, but what kind of advice would you give someone? I mean, now you've given it to me and I want to hear it because <laughs> I need it. Um, but what kind of advice would you give to someone, especially if they're stuck? I mean, I, I've been in that position myself, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, um, been in that position myself. I've been miserable. I've been not wanting to get up in the morning, actually to the point of crying when I would get up just because I'm like, this is not what I want and I don't know what to do next. Um, what would you tell people? What would you say? I think like everybody goes through that. So the first thing I would tell people is like, that's, that's totally normal. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think sometimes you need to hear that. Like sometimes yeah. you need to hear that, that, that sense of like overwhelming depression or dread or frustration with your life is like something we all experience, no matter where we're from, no matter how well off we are. Um, everybody, everybody gets to a point where they question. I mean, it's part of what makes us human is that constant, questioning of like why we're here and what we're contributing and whether our lives are worthwhile. Like, I think that's like, if you, if you aren't thinking those things, there's something wrong with you. Cool. Um, so the first thing I would tell people is like, just embrace the fact that that's like, it's an awesome part of what makes you human. The fact that you could feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the next, uh, the next thing I would tell people is just like, do little things. Little things are like, they add up way quicker than trying to do one giant thing. You mean like and you're playing? Like, is that an example yeah. of that? Yeah, like just take I mean, just it? But like, like, pick a, like pick a little thing. Like pick, you know, rearrange the magnets on your refrigerator. <laughs> just like, I'm not even kidding. Like, no, just yeah. pick like tiny things that um, give you a small sense of fulfillment and don't question it. Like don't ask yourself like, is this worth doing or is – um, you know, is this a waste of my time? Just like if it, if it makes you, if it gives you a sense of fulfillment, do that thing. And, um, for some people, like I, I, I know for myself personally, cleaning the house is like a really good reset button. Mm -hmm. Um, Me just too. going through all my stuff and, you know, you, you always find little things that you put aside that you're going to deal with later. Um, <laughs> and I'm not talking about like stacks of bills. I'm talking about like, like little art projects yep. or like, uh, you know, a, a hole in your pants that's needs to be sewed or whatever. Those little things, if you do them, they like, it's almost like that creates more fuel for doing more things. Yes, um, yes. And if that's, those are the, those little tiny things that you're just like, you feel like they're not worth the time or you feel like there's stuff that's more worthwhile to do, but you know that they would give you a sense of deep satisfaction if you did them. Those are the things that bring you back to that feeling of things you did when you were a kid. Cause like kids do not ask that question when they get up and go to school. They don't ask themselves like, is it like this, this 15 minutes that I just spent watching an anthill was that like a waste of my time? <laughs> Kids don't ask those questions. And so nope. you kind of have to put yourself back in that mindset of like, I'm doing this because I want to and I find it interesting and that's that's why I'm doing it. Um, and then the other really big piece of advice that I give everyone I know who struggles with this stuff is just walk away from TV for a while. Ooh. Like it's so easy, so easy to just like turn your brain off that way. And it's I think a lot of people don't realize how much of their like sense of dissatisfaction is knowing that they spent four hours um, 
doing nothing that day. Wow. Like you just, just do something with that four hours, even if it's just going for a walk or whatever, and you'll actually instantly feel more satisfied with yourself. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I don't think TV is bad, man. I'm super addicted to Cosmos um. right now. <laughs> but really? like, I think, I think the balance, like sometimes mm. in order to find the balance, you have to step away completely and go back to yeah. doing other things for a while. Wow. Yeah, that one got me right in the gut because that's exactly what I end up doing. Yeah, man. Disconnect, <laughs> disconnect Netflix. Like just yep. it's it's hard. It's hard actually because um you're in a position where you live with somebody and mm. like lifestyles tend to overlap and yeah. it's really, really hard to find a sense of like independence yeah. when you're kind of your life is kind of entwined with another person's. Yes. But yeah, like getting up and walking away, like not in a judgy way, just in a like, this is, I'm just going to like spend the next, just little commitments. Like I'm going to spend the next week not watching Netflix and doing something else instead. Um, yeah. It's interesting because what will end up happening is it'll influence the other person without you really meaning it to. Wow. Because people like being around other people when they're having fun. So that's true. Yeah, I was just thinking when you said about, you know, give yourself time to do those little things and, and how easy it is for all the to-do lists to start entering in your head and like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm judging myself. But I don't tend to judge myself so much when I'm binge watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or, you know. Like. You know, it's weird, right? Like, it's, it, it, I don't know why there's a, a bypass yeah. there. I don't know. But I, think, I think a huge part of it is like, uh, this is my guess. I mm. think we're we're raised to believe that time spent relaxing in front of entertainment um like whether it's playing you know casual games on our phones or watching tv or um like even even lying around reading a book is time we've earned mm -hmm. so i think like there's that's a reward so we see it differently than an activity interesting huh and wow. i think that's actually something that starts when you're a kid and i, I actually uh I, I'm pretty convinced. I have absolutely no evidence for this, but I'm I'm convinced that that actually is getting worse um, yeah. as screen-based entertainment becomes more accessible. Like now that we have iPads and and you know full movies on our phones and stuff, <laughs> um, I think I think kids are actually being given the message that this is a reward mm -hmm. much sooner in their lives. And you know when I when I was younger. Um, being allowed to play outside after doing your chores was your reward. Now it's like, do your chores and you can play on, uh, you can play Angry Birds for an hour or whatever. Yeah. And I think that that actually sends a pretty, a pretty terrible message when it, when you think about how people will end up spending their leisure time as they get older. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah. I didn't think so of that. Yeah. I mean, I think because you just, you don't, I think there are children, there's a whole generation of children that don't, that are growing up now that don't remember or will never experience the sense of like freedom of, you know, riding their bike down a street they aren't allowed to go down or, <laughs> and, and that concerns me because yeah. I think that that sense of, of conquering, facing and conquering the unknown is something that creates, um, like positive change in your adult life. And if you don't experience as a, as a kid, I, I wonder if it becomes a lot more like you were saying that you were really sheltered. Like, I wonder if that creates a, a more difficult challenge when you're older and you need to make massive changes in your life. Like mm -hmm. if you haven't learned to face the unknown as a child, what does that mean for your adult experiences? Yeah. Um, well and, and the play and play, you know, as someone who did grow up in a super stable, you know, condition play was 
one of the only places where I really faced those big unknowns. You know, obviously when I moved at at a certain age, those kinds of things, but play became that outlet for me as a child. Um, Definitely didn't have the same impact, I I think, as people who really faced the serious, you know, issues. Um, But yeah, yeah, that's really, really interesting because then I, I did see, I think for me, you know, I did see going outside to play as reward, but I also desperately wanted to be on, be watching TV. And if my parents granted me that wish, I was just elated. It was like playing outside was like a normal thing. Getting to watch TV was like the biggest thing. And so, yeah, I've definitely brought that into my adult life and play has completely disappeared and television <laughs> or going out to restaurants with friends is pretty much the only, they're pretty much the only two things um, that I do, well, that I had been doing anyway until now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's really hard to because I think like a lot of times people forget that there's a lot of different levels to play and um, there's playing by yourself. There's like like yes. exploring the world on your own terms and I think it's easier to take chances when it's on your own. So taking like a comedy class or whatever on mm-hmm. your own where you're not committed to relying on somebody else to go with you and you're not worried about someone you know seeing you mess up and stuff. I think <laughs> that's like... That's that's on par with, you know, uh, being a little kid and capturing a bug and watching how it behaves when you throw another bug in the jar or whatever. Like yeah. it's there's 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 sort of like that sense of of it's your world and you're alone in it and you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And then there's also collaborative play. So building stuff together, um, going going camping. I'm just trying to draw stuff from my, my own childhood. And like Mm -hmm. for, for us, one of the big activities in the schoolyard was we were really into role playing. So, Mm. uh, there were a group of, of girls and, you know, from about grade four to grade six who at recess would get together and we'd all have these roles that we'd play. And I was always the puppy, but it was like playing house (laughs) in these little snow forts and, and, uh, and we, we would all, we would build these elaborate structures that were like, from from an adult's viewpoint, just little trails in the snow, but in our little child minds, they were like these these cities. Like we we each had a little house, and uh, there was like a town square, and we'd have these areas that everybody agreed on the rules. And I think that that sense of like everybody agreeing to see the same things, agreeing on the rules, um, that's something that we we also lose as adults, yeah. and it becomes more difficult to communicate when you when you don't do it in a playful way because there's it becomes hierarchical. It becomes more about like one person telling you what to do as opposed to like all of you getting together and agreeing like this is this is how we're going to cooperate on this experience. And um, that's one of the things I love about Burning Man is that like that Burning Man is the agreement of a city. Mm-hmm. It's not a city. Yeah. It's like like it's a whole bunch of people agreeing on where the roads should be and agreeing on what the rules should be. <laughs> yes. And it's just gotten crazier over time. I mean, it started on a beach with like nothing, no rules and yeah. then uh, everything kind of just built on top of it. So the history of it is really interesting, mm-hmm. but I think there aren't enough opportunities in everyday life to, to have that agreement. And it's something you see in startup culture a lot mm-hmm. um, in, in small companies that are starting amongst friends, particularly when the, the founders are fairly young, it starts out like, it starts out like a game almost like it's yeah. like you're, per, you're pretending at being the CEO. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, it's incredibly playful. It's mm-hmm. like if it's done, if it's done right and it's done in like the spirit of um, true entrepreneurship, which is like, I'm going to solve a problem. I'm going to make mm-hmm. something, I'm going to create something that didn't exist before. 
then play is very much a part of the culture of a new company. And I think, uh, in, in some of the, in some of the, uh, jobs that, you know, most of my friends have in, in big established companies, there's no opportunity to do that. You can't make any part of it your own. You're just basically there filling a role, um, and you're replaceable and there's no sense of job satisfaction because yes. you don't have, there's no, you can't take any ownership of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm wow. I'm really blown away. This has gone so many interesting places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just really taken with how you were able to go from a place of discontent and just follow it. Like a child would follow something fun out, you know, the, out there that they want to do and you didn't, I'm sure you questioned yourself along the way. I'm sure you, but there's something about well, you. I also, I also did a lot of really negative things. Like there, <laughs> there's, you know, there, there was definitely, there were weekends where I partied too hard or there was like, you know, I, I looked for that feeling. I looked yep. for that sense of like, like feeling happy yeah. um, and, and feeling good about myself in ways that were not, you know, necessarily um, super healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you just keep trying. Yes, you keep yes, trying until exactly. you find the thing that, that makes you really, really happy. And, mm-hmm. and what ends up happening is like all the negative stuff just sort of naturally falls away because as soon as I, have you ever, have you ever read the rat park study? No. Huh? Oh, this is one of my favorite studies on addiction. Um, and I wish I, I wish I was better at remembering facts, but if you look up rat park, you'll find out what school it was from and what researchers conducted it and stuff. Um, but basically there was a guy who, uh, was studying addiction and um, the team was taking these rats and getting them addicted to, you know, very hardcore drugs like uh, like crack and stuff and, and throwing crack and heroin, I think, were the two big ones. And they were throwing them into these cages and watching how they behaved and, you know, whether or not they were capable of kicking the addiction and what happened when the drugs were taken away. And this one researcher was like, you know, like, if you took a person and, and like, comparing these rats to, like, human addicts is, like, doesn't seem right because if you take a person and you put them in a little box <laughs> and you give them nothing but drugs, like they're just going to do the drugs. What else is there to do? Right. Exactly. So he built this thing called rat park, which was basically like rat heaven. Like he built this like massive cage where they could socialize and they had toys to play with and like things to climb and explore. And, um, he had a control study of rats that weren't addicted that were like kind of the permanent residents of rat park. And then he had the, the rats that had been, you know, given drugs and put in isolation. And he took those rats out of isolation and stuck them into rat park to see if they would continue being addicted to substances, if they were provided with a more enriching environment mm-hmm. and every single one of them quit doing drugs. And they went through like hardcore, like, like these, these rats were like, you know, some of them had to be treated because they would just stop doing the drugs and the, like sometimes when you quit really suddenly yeah. it has terrible biological impact. Absolutely. And so, um, so, but the, every single one of them weaned themselves off or like ended up opting to not do drugs because they had something better. Like there was something better than drugs to do and wow. they wanted to do that thing. And I think that like in a lot of cases where people go down the path of when they're really, really dissatisfied and they go down the path of self-destruction, they become, you know, drug addicts or alcoholics, or they try to fill that gap in their lives in ways that are super unhealthy. I think the reason that that propagates and the reason that, that people have such a hard time recovering from that is because we live in a society where people are isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you keep that in mind in terms of trying to add more play into your life, mm-hmm. the one 
most important step that you can do is go find other people that are trying to solve the same problem. Like go, mm. go, go find other people that are like looking to change their lives or, um, looking to experience like a positive sort of fun. And it's the weirdest thing to say because I'm not religious, but church can sometimes be that place. Like I know that when I was, when I was really lonely as a kid, when I first moved to a new city and I didn't have any friends, youth group was like the thing that I would do to like have a social life, to go Hmm. meet people that just wanted to sing together or whatever. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for that when you're an adult, um, and taking classes is one of them. I mean, if you're artistic, there's all kinds of crazy things you can learn how to do, like from pyrotechnics to like, like learning how to do stained glass and all of those things are play. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think a lot of people feel like you need a lot, you need resources to do those things. But the fact is you really don't like, Mm there's all kinds of resources on the internet that will just tell you how to I, like my friend, my friend Holly, one of my favorite stories of like finding some weird creative thing to do on the internet, taught herself how to make ginger beer. Um, oh my gosh. And the first time she did it, she, she, she was determined to make uh, five gallons of ginger beer for less than $5. <laughs> nice. She bought all of her supplies at the dollar store and she documented the whole thing. She forgot to, at the end, she forgot to, like, uh, I guess you have to, like, vent it because pressure builds up. She forgot and exploded <laughs> in her closet. Uh, so the second time she did it, she remembered to vent it properly. But she actually went and bought, like, one of those five-gallon water containers from, like, a camping store. And she she learned how to brew ginger beer in her closet she documented the whole thing and then she went and gave a talk on it um with all these slides and stuff and taught people how to do it and every stage of that is like super creative super playful and she went from like doing a little thing in her closet by herself to like running a workshop on how to make ginger beer for less than five dollars wow oh my gosh it it wasn't expensive i mean it didn't cost her yeah, you got to send me a link to that. That'd be great. I'll include that as well as, well as the rat study, rat park. That'd yeah, great I can to keep that in the show park. notes. That's great. For wow. sure. Wow. Well, I am just completely inspired again, even though I've heard a lot of this before from our many conversations um, and just want to thank you for encouraging me to get out there and have fun and explore and um, we'll be continuing to do that. Any last words to anybody um, out there who might be pondering what to do next? Uh, no, I think we've kind of covered it no, all, but I, you have like, to tell it, me what you always just tell me. I want to hear it. You got to tell me again. Oh, get off your ass. <laughs> Stop yeah. talking about it. Just do it. That's exactly <laughs> what you say to me all the time. Um, and I really appreciate it. I really do. It's, it's awesome. And maybe when I thought that you had that, that person was a mentor, even though I, I consider you a friend, you're also very much a mentor to me. So I appreciate Aww. everything you've been teaching me. Um, But thank you, Meg. Thank you so much. And um, I really appreciate having you on the show. Cool. Yeah. And I'm going to keep listening and uh, (laughs) riding your butt to make sure you keep doing it. (laughs) Awesome. I'll count on it. Thanks so much. (laughs) Bye, Kara. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me on the Playgrounding Podcast. Go to playgrounding.com to see a video of Meg's toy, Lumo, in action. I've also posted links to Meg's social media and websites, as well as Stuart McMillan's comic strip style telling of the story of the Rat Park study. Join me next week for a conversation with roller derby queen Morning Wood. In the meantime, go to playgrounding.com to subscribe on iTunes. Have a playful week.